Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. William Mounts is with us today. He is the head of biblicaltraining.org. It's an educational resource for local churches in particular, but anyone interested, I, I would imagine. He's the author of Basics of Biblical Greek Grammar and also the author of a new book, Why I Trust the Bible, our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Mounts. Good to be here. Thanks. Uh, let me recite the full subtitle, Answers to Real Questions and Doubts People Have About the Bible. So this is a very practical guidebook, yes? Yes, that was his intention. And your, your audience wouldn't be just pastors, priests, ministers, and others. How big no. do you want this audience to be? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> the, uh, excuse me. The, uh, the primary audience actually are the 17-year-olds who have left and gone to the university and are having their faith questioned, and then secondly, their parents, uh, because that, that's where we're seeing most of this stuff hit home is when kids hit college. So I, I try to write it for both of those audiences, and it's ironically enough, I believe, that a non-believer could pick it up and read it and, and get helpful information. You mentioned one audience being kids who are going to college. Was there particular things you observed of kids going to college and uh, finding, finding out that uh, what they learned before is just wrong? <laughs> well, not so much wrong, but they were questioning things. Yeah, I taught at Azusa Pacific University for 10 years, and mm -hmm. I, half my load was New Testament survey. So I got a lot of 17-year-olds coming into my class and my basic approach was to say, you know, why do you believe what you believe? And very few even had an answer. And I said, is it because your mom and dad told you to believe it? Well, yeah. Do you believe everything your mom and dad say? Well, no. <laughs> In other words, when you first hit college, it's real natural to start asking questions for yourself. And so I think that's always been just how we grow into individuals, because as I would encourage kids, if you don't ask these questions, you'll never really believe the answers. You, you rarely believe something you haven't worked through. You rarely believe something that you're just told. And so you have to work through it. And n now, as opposed to when I was teaching 30 years ago, uh, the works of Bart Ehrman and others are so focused at kids in the university system that this problem has just become way more obvious than it was when I was teaching. So they, they enter college and they have that natural curiosity. As you said, they're mm -hmm. leaving home for the first time. They're leaving the guidance of parents and the whole college atmosphere is, you know, critical thinking and problem solving mm -hmm. and challenge, you know, convention and tradition. And you're, the, the real necessity of this book is that 
the way in which they will answer the questions is all stacked in one direction right? in higher education. Right. What do you see? Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you go to a Christian university, you're still, especially depending on its theological bias, you're, you're still going to have that question asked. And if you are at a state school or a more liberal, quote, Christian school, um, you're really going to have, the professors are going to really go right at it. Um, the very, it's a very frontal approach now in university. So you just, you have, you always had to be ready, uh, especially when, if you believe things and you haven't thought through them, and as soon as you get into an environment where critical thinking is important and you have to have reasons for why you believe what you believe or why you do what you do, um, you know, it's just, you really need to think through the issues. I used to joke that speaking to youth groups used to be the about the easiest thing in the world to do. They they only had two questions. What's God's will for my life, and can I sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend? I mean, it's, that was it. And, you know, I said, well, the first question is really easy. First uh, Thessalonians 4, God's will for your life is your sanctification. After that, not a whole lot matters. And uh, as far as sleeping, the answer is no. But... Um, you know, now, now it's a totally different ballgame. You begin, so, so let, let's get into the specific content of the book. You begin with a simple historical question, who was Jesus? And you mean that as a historical question, correct? Yes. And your, how do you go about providing answers to that question? Because one of the basic things is, what evidence is there for the bare existence of Jesus? We won't even, we'll hold off on his divinity, but just right. that there was, there was a man named Jesus who existed. How do we, how do we know this? Well, I mean, it, I always thought when I first started doing the research for this, it was just, it was so odd to think that people believe that the single most influential person in the history of the entire world never existed. And Jesus' mythicism just strikes me as the oddest thing. And they'll often point to the lack of historical references. But we have a very strong uh, two references in Josephus, who was no friend of Christians. We have four Roman authors. We have two Greek authors. We actually have references in Jewish literature that they don't like him, but they recognize that he exists. And we have the witness of the Bible, and sometimes people will say, well, that's circular argument. But I don't think it is because you can't explain the meteoric rise of Christianity and the spread throughout the ancient world without an historical figure, especially since Christian theology depends upon the historicity of Jesus and the historicity of what he did and the historicity of what he said and the historicity of his uh, crucifixion and his uh, rising from the dead. This is not just some ideas that kind of slowly pervaded the ancient world. It took off like mad. And it, you just can't explain those without believing in historical Jesus. Why would people want to go against the historical evidence for the existence of Jesus when it's I, when it is so copious I think you have to be really careful at critiquing people's motives uh, I remember being taught in seminary that you never critique motives you don't know what they are and it doesn't matter anyway you have to deal with the facts but having said that uh, 
I think when you get to this issue, the issue of apparent contradictions, uh, historical Jesus, the the further debates on it, um, canonicity. I mean, when you look at a lot of the issues that I deal with in the book, you wonder if they just don't like Jesus and they don't want to submit to Jesus. And so they throw up smoke screens so they don't have to deal with it. And so if somebody is... Um, giving them the claims of Christ, and they don't want to deal with the claims of Christ. They don't want to explain the tomb. They don't want to explain his lordship. It's easier just to throw up a smoke screen and say, well, I don't, I've heard he didn't even exist, so I'm not even going to deal with the question. You know, it, I just, I know especially on apparent contradictions, what I tell people is someone said, well, I can't trust the Bible because of all the contradictions. I, the first question you always ask is, well, could you give me one so we could work through it? And the vast majority of people don't have a clue where the problem passages are. They, they don't know that one gospel said there were two angels and the other one reports only one. I mean, there are things like this that need to be described, but they don't know where those problems are because the issue of contradictions in canon and historical Jesus most likely are not the real issue. It has to do with the Lordship of Christ. You also point to oral Tradition. Uh, yeah. How should we understand oral tradition, and what makes it reliable? I think the hard thing for someone in a non-oral culture, which we live in a non-oral culture, is to understand this. In an oral culture, traditions, teachings, facts are passed on by word of mouth, hence oral. And actually, most of the world is oral in how it uh, conveys its stories and its information. And and so it's it's hard for a non-oral culture to understand that. But, you know, a lot of people compare it to the telephone game, and it's a completely spurious uh, comparison because in the telephone game, you know, person A says something to person B who says it to person C. When it comes out to the 15th kid in the small group or the or the young group, uh, church group kind of thing, you know, that what, what the 15th person says is nothing like what the first person said. And so... That kind of argument and analogy is used to argue that during the 30 years or so that we think the stories of Jesus were passed on by word of mouth, that they aren't trustworthy. But these people don't live in an oral culture, and in an oral culture, they do remember. They understand that the facts are important. More importantly, well, not as importantly, is that you have checks and balances. In the telephone game, it's one-on-one, -on -one, but in the stories of the early church as they passed on the stories— it was it was very public, and there were people like the apostles and disciples and other people who had been with Jesus the whole time who did hear and were able to make sure the stories were told correctly. And so in the combination of it being an oral culture and the value it places on exact memory and on the fact that it's very public with gatekeepers, so to speak, is it's the telephone game is is a very, very poor analogy. It, it works rhetorically in groups, but it, when it gets right down to it, it's not accurate. Uh, one of the questions you take up is the historiographical status of the Gospels. And you, and you address some interesting questions there. For instance, mm -hmm. uh, why were the Gospels not written very quickly, within a few years after the crucifixion? Why, why wait decades before putting the story out there? And well, certainly part of the answer is it's an oral it's an oral society, and there was not the perceived need of writing things down until the gatekeepers started to die. And you know, when when Peter's ending near the end of his life, Mark says, you know, we need to get this thing written down. 
Um, it, it's been very interesting. I don't draw my theology from the movie The Chosen, but it's very interesting how in The Chosen they show the apostles, especially John and Matthew, taking notes all the time. And we're understanding now that Judaism was not totally against note-taking. Uh, certainly there were certain rabbis that said it was wrong to do it, but there were other ones that apparently were okay with it. And so it very well could have been that there were notes taken down, and uh, it wasn't just that they sat down 30 years after the fact and tried to remember. And in the, in the argument of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to convince a skeptic, but it's reassuring to a believer. And when Jesus says uh, another comforter is coming, and he's going to remind you of everything that I've said and done. And so for a Christian, we can look at oral tradition, note-taking. We understand that the Holy Spirit also had his hand in the process. Again, it doesn't convince a skeptic, but it should be reassuring to a Christian. I, I think what you just said about the... Uh, the idea of we write things down when the 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 apostles are getting old and right. approaching their own end. We've had the oral tradition. We've had them spreading the world. We don't need a written version of things until the, a certain amount of time has passed. Bill, I yeah. think that answer should be that. That is a thoroughly secular. I mean, I mean that that answer can be offered in only secular terms. That should actually put the question. To rest, even to a hardcore secularist, <laughs> it seems yes. to me. Yeah. Now, uh, I think there's another argument too, and I've kind of shied away from it in the past, but I think it's better that the disciples had no idea how long Jesus was going to be gone. I mean, in Acts one, okay, or is this it? Did you were you gone for 40, 50 days, and now we're gonna, you know, then the kingdom's going to come in its fullness. Um, there's, this is a bit of a debate as how quickly the church thought that Christ was going to come back again. But there certainly was a sense that they did not know. And so there may not have been a perceived need to write things down right away. But uh, very quickly, I think it became obvious that the Lord was not going to return again in a matter of days. And so they had to uh, write them down eventually. Yeah. Uh, next question. To what degree uh, do you think, uh, this is a, a big question uh, in, in theology, did Paul alter or clarify Jesus' message? I had a fascinating discussion with a good friend of mine uh, at church, and she said, well, Jesus I believe, but I don't have to believe the disciples. I don't have to believe Paul. Hmm. And it was, it, was, it was a kind of a semi-naive way of asking this question. So I just said, well, how do you know about Jesus? Well, Matthew tells me. Who is Matthew? Oh, he's an apostle. Uh, Mark told you, okay, that's Peter. Luke is a friend of Paul, friend of an apostle. John's an apostle. In other words, what you believe, you believe because an apostle wrote it. Paul was an apostle. And so sometimes I think if you just have to kind of sit down and think through it, that you realize that Paul carries the same authority because he was an apostle, as did the disciples. Craig Blomberg, in one of his books, has a fascinating discussion where he talks about the comparison of Jesus and Paul. And there's this stereotype that Jesus was this kind, loving guy, and Paul was this angry, mad person. And they talk differently and with different tones of voice and stuff like that. But, you know, you can't get much firmer than Matthew 24 and Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. And you can't get much more loving than Romans 8 and Paul. 
In other words, the there is an apparent difference between Jesus and Paul, but when you sit down right and look at it, they're not that different. They are addressing different concerns, different people, and they use different language to convey what they want to say. But I think anything you find in Jesus, you can find in Paul and vice versa. So while there's a veneer of difference on the outside, uh, at the heart of the matter, they're not different. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago the contradictions that one finds in the Bible. And we, we all know those gotcha moments that mm-hmm. our, our, our secular, our libertarians uh, throw at us, uh, you know, things about you know, how, how could Cain have children or Abel, whatever. But... Uh, how do you respond to those those gotcha moments? Well, the, I, as I mentioned earlier, but let me just emphasize it. And when you get into the issue of contradictions, you you can't just delve into a contradiction. You you have to find out what the your friends or whoever you're talking to, what their specific issue is. Now, if they say, well, I, one gospel says there's two angels, another gospel says there's one angel at the tomb. I mean, if they can't even get a fact like that right, how can I trust anything, they would say. I mean, that's kind of how the argument could go. Uh, But very rarely do people know that. So you always want to ask them, can you give me an example? 90, I don't know, I mean, compared just anecdotally, it's almost 100% of the people that have asked me this question really had no awareness of where the problem passages were. They may know the synoptics are just a little different from each other, but not in the sense of contradictions. And you would then, at that point, you have to ask the more penetrating questions is, well, why did you say that you don't believe because of the contradictions when you don't know the contradictions? You know, what's really going on in your heart? And you you just, you have to go that direction. And then what I found is that if people know how the synoptics were put together, and if people understand the role of um, hermeneutics, of how you study your Bible, in other words, asking yourself, is it really impossible that Cain married his sister? Does the Bible say that Cain did not have a sister? No, the Bible never says that. It recounts the birth of the first two boys. It says nothing about any girls. So he could very well have married his sister. But that's just an issue of interpretation that, you know, you, you think the Bible says something and it doesn't. Uh, a good example is I was talking to someone just last week and they asked me about the two angels. And the way the question was phrased, he said, and one of the Gospels says there was only one. And that was that was let me know that they hadn't really read the text carefully. And they said, well, the text doesn't say only one. It's reporting what one angel said. It's not saying there weren't two or ten or whatever. Uh, likewise, when you look at the listings of what women were at the uh, at the cross, the, the, the names are, are different. No gospel writer is intending on being complete, and he's giving you the names that were important to him to give. 
So I think by the, if you know about how the Gospels were put together and if you understand the role of right interpretation, just about all these problems go away. You're a scholar of ancient languages, a distinguished one, and you refer to something in the book called Ancient Writing Standards, uh, yes. which you say shaped the composition of the Gospel. How did that work? Yeah, I think that's probably the most difficult thing to process in the book and in the whole discussion in general, and I, hopefully I've laid it out in a way that is believable. But let me start with this way. If, if I tell you that I'm, I'm 6'3", you know, did I lie? Well, I was 6'2 and 3 quarters most of my life. I'm shrinking. I'm 6'2 now, but I'm so used to saying 6'3". I say 6'3". It's an approximation. It's just the way we talk. If you have two people standing on a street corner and they get together and explain to a third person what happened the last half hour there at the street corner, the stories are all going to be different. And they're not going to be contradictory. They're going to be complementary because people see different things and they tell the story differently. And so, in other words, we exercise freedom in our storytelling. We, we give approximations. I'm 6'2". I weigh 210 pounds. Well, this morning, I think it was 211. You know, that kind of thing. And we understand that unless we're designing circuit boards, no one is precisely accurate. And we don't expect anyone to be. Otherwise, we just couldn't communicate. So if, you're, if you take that and then multiply it times 10, you have what was going on in the ancient world. They were very comfortable with approximations. They were very comfortable with, uh, you know, jamming two parts of a story into one. Um, uh, those kinds of things. And they weren't trying to deceive. They were communicating in the way you did communicate in the first century. And everyone understood that there was a certain freedom in the writing. And so when you, you that's just another component as you look at some of these issues. You refer to the year 303 AD. I'm going to say AD and Emperor Diocletian ordering all Christian texts destroyed. Yeah. And that it's rather remarkable then how many texts survive and in pretty good form. How did they survive? Well, I'm, I'm sure people hid them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Buried them, you know, tucked them away somewhere. Uh, there's, there was no way that a, a Christian was going to let uh, a Greek manuscript of 1 Corinthians just be destroyed if there was no way around it. And Diocletian's reign of terror lasted for a while, but not forever. So by the time you get to Constantine, you've got him telling Eusebius he wants 50 copies of the, of the whole Bible. And so, you, you, you know, if, if Diocletian and his, the cronies that followed him had maintained the same kind of aggressive attack on Christianity, uh, it'd be, you would have to say it's providential that any uh, lasted. But I, I just think you, you have a... I don't, know, I don't know how long Diocletian was there, 10 years or something. Uh, and it's possible to hide stuff and tuck it away in some corner of the Roman Empire where he can't get to it. Yeah. Uh, over the years, of course, there have been uh, strong examinations of which books go into the Bible mm -hmm. and which books don't. Do you have very strong confidence in, in all of those decisions? Just in your own, your, your own take on things. 
You know, I was I was very pleasantly surprised about how strong the evidence is. And it, you have to tip your hat to Michael Kruger. He's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary and has written a couple of just utterly amazing books on canonicity. And uh, if if your listeners want to study more, that's those are the two books that I recommend you look at. He he makes a a couple of good points. One was the church didn't confer canonicity. That wasn't a decision the church made because the church isn't over the gospel. The gospel is over the church. And secondly, he has three different definitions of what a canon is. And the first one is what he calls ontological, and that is the books that were instantly recognized. Not They weren't granted authority, but the authority of the books were recognized instantly. And most people give the number 21. I think Revelation fits into that because Revelation was questioned a little, but it wasn't until later centuries. So you had 22 books that were accepted as authoritative instantly. People recognize the divine author behind Paul and Luke and Matthew, Mark, and so forth and so on. And so you really have the establishment of an ontological canon that the minute they were written. And that just leaves five books, basically, where there were questions. And it's interesting that we have the witness of Papias, who was John's disciple. So we have a very reliable witness. We have Origen that actually traveled extensively to try to figure out what the church as a whole had accepted as authoritative. And then you have these early lists and things like that. The, the evidence is actually very, very strong that we got the right 27. Uh, the Lord superintended that process. And th there weren't that many questions about um, crazy books like the Gospel of Thomas, that whether they should be in. Their questions were about some, for the most part, about some of the better books like Didache and First Clement that are not heretical. They're encouraging. They're helpful to read. Uh, but a lot of the question uh, circled around them. If I just go quickly through the list, it, there's three tests for canon. There's apostolicity, who wrote it. There's Catholicity, did the whole universal church, not the Catholic Roman Catholic Church, but the church as a whole, did they accept it? And did the book agree with the 22 core books in the canon that the church accepted instantly? And when you look at those, Hebrews had trouble with apostolicity because we don't know who wrote it. Uh, James had trouble because it appeared to contradict the theology of Paul on justification. Second Peter had trouble because it's so different from the Greek of First Peter. Jude had trouble because almost everything in Jude is in Second Peter, and he quotes two non-biblical books. That really, in terms of the books that are in the canon, those are the only ones that were really questioned. And, you know, by the middle of the second century, most people are understanding those books are canonical, and by the end of the fourth century, there was the debate had all ceased. So I, I was very pl pleased to find out how strong the evidence is that we got the right books. You turn to the Old Testament in your final sections. Uh, what are the biggest difficulties you find modern readers have comprehending the Old Testament? That's a, that's a hard question. I actually asked the publisher to call the book Why I Trust the New Testament and get someone to write the Old Testament one that was more qualified than I because there are there, there are some very and hopefully hopefully that volume will still be written, but I think first of all it's so different 
that people have a hard time getting their hands around it. Uh, it's such a different culture and a different way of telling stories that you just scratch your head and go, how can, I mean, really, 800 years old? Somebody lived 800 years old? How's that possible? You know, how can two million people, Jews that come, Jews and friends that come out of Egypt and headed up to uh, the promised land? I mean, it's just, these are, these are hermeneutical issues that are difficult because it's so different. Uh, well, how come, how come David could have multiple wives and I can't, you know, kind of stuff. They're just, it, it's different. And that's certainly true. The, the, the thing I didn't touch on, I actually wrote it, but it, it got way too long and way too complex, was the history of the Hebrew text, which is a very, very complicated process, and the relationship of the Masoretic text to the Greek text. So I think you'd have to be pretty technical to really wonder about that. But I think the, the core answers to your question is that there are certain things that are held up in the Old Testament that are difficult for a modern person to accept. One is, uh, as my son came home from school once and said, Dad, how come God commanded genocide and killed the Canaanites? We had a really helpful, dis I think it was helpful, anyway, discussion that it wasn't genocide. It may appear on the outside to be genocide, but it was God waited 400 years to punish the Amorites because of their sin. He sent his own people into captivity for 400 years to be fair, quote unquote, um, for the Amorites, and then they didn't repent, and so God punished them by killing them. And God does, from time to time, kill people uh, as punishment for their sin, even in 1 Corinthians, it was happening. But that is a hard thing. And and people will say that the wrath of God is more evident in the Old Testament. I, I think it's pretty clear in the New Testament, too. You just read Revelation. Revelation's but, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so. but it's, it's a little harder to balance God being a God of love and being a God of holiness, and love moves, moves him to forgive, and holiness moves him to judge. Uh, and the balance of those two, it's hard for anyone, New or Old Testament, but I think it's a, a special issue in the Old Testament. So I think, I mean, those are the, um, the issues of the Old Testament are more, uh, for the lay person anyway, uh, are really more theological with how different it is. The book is Why I Trust the Bible by William Mounts. Mr. Mounts, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.